I tell you, I don't know where to tell you to turn because we're using about the whole Bible tonight. Um, so let's, I guess let's start in Psalm 51. Psalm 51. All right. Bye, everybody. Wow. I don't want them to say goodbye to me. You saw that, didn't you? Get, thank you, Barrett. That's, thank you, now that I've said something. All right. <clears throat> Let's pray. How about that? Lord God, please help us tonight as we continue to look at this wonderful subject of your Holy Spirit. Lord, I just pray that you would just speak to our hearts and just do something unusual in our midst, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let me go through a quick review of uh, last week. Pneumatology 101, that's the study of the Holy Spirit, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And the reason that we're focusing on this right now, I believe, is because the Lord on Wednesday nights especially has been drawing our thoughts toward revival. And, and the truth is, without the work of the Holy Spirit, we will not see revival. We won't. All is vain unless the Spirit of the Holy One comes down, is what the song says. Another song says, O Holy Ghost, revival comes from Thee. Send a revival, start the work in me. Now the question's asked, why are so many Christians utilizing so little of the Holy Ghost's power in their lives? And I think there's three basic reasons. Number one is apathy. We've not taken the time to learn what the Bible teaches about God's Holy Spirit. Number two is apprehension. There's some folks that are intimidated by what they at least think Holy Ghost power is and what it will require of them. Well, well I, I, if, I, if I let the Holy Spirit have his way in my life, then, then that's, that's going to mean that, that one of two things is going to happen. I'm either going to be monkish in my piety, you know, oh, or I'm going to be laying, rolling around on the floor. You know, neither of those is true. Holy Ghost power is not taking a vow that silences the tongue or gaining the ability to speak in other tongues. Holy Ghost power is learning to control the tongue you already have. I think sometimes it also stems from cultural fears surrounding the word spirit and ghost. You hear about the Holy Ghost. Think of somebody that's not saved. Do you have the Holy Ghost? The what? What kind of ghost? What kind of spirit? I mean, think about that. And there's some people that maybe culturally they're scared of that word. So apathy, apprehension, and then avoidance. Some Christians are so nervous about being identified with groups that, that maybe they don't see eye to eye in their views on the Holy Spirit that they misunderstand what the Bible teaches about him. Can I be blunt about it? We're so afraid of being called Pentecostal that we don't even talk about the Holy Spirit. You know, <laughs> you're, going, you're going to find this out eventually. Not everybody's wrong about everything. And we Baptists could, could stand to be a little more theologically uh, receptive. Now, I'm not saying that we need to do everything like everybody else does, but sometimes if we're not careful, we avoid good things because we're afraid of being tied into something else. You know. So we're talking about pneumatology, one-on-one teachings 
on the Holy Spirit? We've got three questions we want to get answered. We answered the first one, I hope, last week, who is the Holy Spirit? Then this week, what does the Holy Spirit do? And then, Lord willing, next week, what is my responsibility to the Holy Spirit? So let's begin with the person of the Holy Spirit. Who is the Holy Spirit? Well, he is a person. Now, that's important to state because some people view the Holy Spirit as this faceless it, you know? And, you, you know, you look at something like Romans eight twenty six. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And we just, we went through a little bit about how that's a matter of gender. That's a grammar thing. That doesn't mean that he's really an it. In fact, there's several times in Scripture that he's called a he. John 14, verse 16, And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth in the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but ye know him, for he dwelleth. See, he's a person. He's a person. So what defines his personhood? What defines the personhood of the Holy Ghost? He has identity. You can't be a person without having identity, can you? What's his identity? He's the comforter. He's our guide. He's our intercessor. He doesn't just have identity. He has personality. He wills. There's things, well, that's, I didn't change that yet. Good night. So let's say he wills. He wills, okay? He thinks and he knows. He speaks and he feels. That's personality, okay? Um, what else do we take from that? How do we, what, what defines the Holy Spirit's personhood? He has ability. He has ability, what kind of abilities? He teaches and guides. He commissions and commands. He intercedes. He loves. By the way, you're going to see a lot of overlap in these two lessons, and that's by, by necessity. But not only is he a person, friend, he is God. He is God. He has divine appellation. What does that mean? His names suggest that he's God. His titles suggest that he's God. He's co-equal with the Godhead. Matthew 28, 19, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. He's called Lord, 2 Corinthians three eighteen. But we all with open face, beholding as in a glass, the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. He is called Lord. He is called God, Acts 5, 3. But Peter said, Ananias, why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? Whilst it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. Verse 4, he says, you lied to the Holy Ghost. Verse, I'm sorry, verse 3, you lied to the Holy Ghost. Verse 4, you lied unto God. What does that mean? They're the same person. He has divine appellation. You know what else? He has divine activity. He has divine activity. What kind of activities does he do? Well, creation's one of them. Remember, um, the Holy Ghost is the first person of the Godhead mentioned by name. When you see in the beginning God, that's just a general term for the Godhead. But it says, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. The Spirit. He was involved in creation. You remember that whole, let us make man in our image? Who you reckon God's talking to? The other members of the Trinity. Um, not only was involved in creation, man, I got a lot of papers up here. He's involved in the restraint of evil. Whoops, too far. Restraint of evil. 
According to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we'll see this again tonight, the only person keeping sin from running absolutely rampant in this world is the Holy Ghost of God. There's also this little thing of inspiration of Scripture. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were what? Moved by the Holy Ghost. He has divine attributes. What kind of attributes does he have? Well, he's eternal, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent. This one I'm just so embarrassed about. He's holy. See, for all of these, I had all these verses. And then when I got to this one, his attribute of holiness, I couldn't find a verse. And then it hit me. It's his name. Holy Spirit. Duh. So your proof verse for that is Bible. He is truth. He is sovereign. So what, what was our so what for that? Our so what was if we're concerned with pleasing God the Father and God the Son, should we not also be careful to please God the Holy Spirit? Maybe we should stop ignoring him or making less of him. Maybe we should see him for who he is, and that is a co-equal member of the Trinity. All right, so now tonight, that's the quickest review I've probably ever done. Tonight, part two, what does the Holy Spirit do? Now, this is a difficult question to answer only because the role of the Holy Spirit has changed over time. He doesn't do all the things that he used to do, and he now does things that he didn't used to do. Okay, for instance, prior to Pentecost, did the Holy Spirit indwell believers? No. That changed. Okay. Until then, he came upon believers. His presence could be removed. Now, look at Psalm 51.11. Verse 10 says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Now, as Christians, when we ask God to forgive us for something, do we ever have to ask him not to remove his Holy Spirit? No. Because the Holy Spirit indwelt us the moment we got saved, and that's how Jesus keeps his promise. Lo, I'm with thee always. I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. And God keeps his promises. So, so we, don't, we don't have to worry about that. Okay. So while a saved person today can render themselves unable to access the power of the Holy Spirit, and we can do that, we need never fear losing the presence of the Holy Spirit. So for this point, um, for this, this, what does the Holy Spirit do? We're going to look to both the Old and the New Testaments, but we're only going to reference those acts of the Holy Spirit that he continues to perform now. Okay, those things that are still germane to our Christian experience. Okay? All right, so what does the Holy Spirit do? First of all, he invites. When you got saved, who invited you to be saved? I don't mean the preacher. I don't mean that gospel song you were listening to. 
Who actually invited your heart to come to Jesus? The answer is the Holy Spirit of God. John 16, verse 13. How be it, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come, and he shall glorify me. For he shall receive of mine, and shall show it unto you. When the Holy Spirit started talking to you, what was his subject? More accurately, who was his subject? Jesus. He's inviting you to come to Jesus. We'll get into conviction a little bit later. But Jesus makes it very clear to Nicodemus. John 3, verse 5, Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water, that's natural birth, and of the who? The Spirit. Who is present at the moment of your conversion? The Spirit of God. He's the one that invites us to Jesus. And then after he's invited you and you come to Jesus, what does he do next? Number two, he indwells. 1 Corinthians 3.16 Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. I'm bad up to here with preachers that are telling Christians they can be demon-possessed. Sorry. They're wrong. Why are they wrong? Because if the Holy Spirit lives in you, is he going to let a demon cohabitate? No, there's not enough room in you for the Holy Spirit and anybody else. And he's not moving out. He indwells you. He has taken up residence in your life. Romans 8 9, But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. So he invites... He indwells. Number three, he identifies. He gives you your identification. Who tells me I'm saved? Now, the Word of God tells me I'm saved, but who can tell me I'm saved? Romans 8, 16. The Spirit itself beareth witness with who? Our spirit. Our spirit. What? That we are the children of God. One of the ways I know I'm saved is the Holy Spirit told me so. He told me so. He invites and then he indwells. He identifies. You know what else he does? He illuminates. He illuminates. Have you ever been reading a passage of Scripture and then all of a sudden it clicked? Wow. That's great. That's what that means. I've never seen that before. Oh, man. Who do you think's doing that? You think some synapse in your brain has finally broke loose and you finally get it? No, that's the Holy Ghost doing that. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 12. Now, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God 
that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. Which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. That's why you can meet somebody who is a professor of theology at some godless college and has committed large portions of Scripture to memory, and they have no idea what the Bible is actually about. Because they don't have the Holy Spirit telling them what it means. Illumination. He invites, he indwells, he identifies, he illuminates. You know what else he does? He influences. He influences. Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Would, would wine influence somebody? Yeah. So is the Spirit. So is the Spirit. He influences. John chapter 16, verse 13. Howbeit, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. That word guide doesn't mean push you into all truth or force you into all truth. He will influence you into all truth. He will guide you. There's a big difference between pushing and, and, and corralling and guiding. Big difference. He guides. Romans 8, 14, for as many as are forced by the Spirit of God, they are the Son, no, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. And then after you're saved, does the Holy Ghost continue to influence you, continue to guide you, continue to lead you, continue to prompt you? Yes. Now, obviously, Scripture is our, our you know, we are sola scriptura here. You know, it's our only rule for faith and practice. But all of us could stand up and, and, and say times that, that the Holy Spirit prompted us in a matter or guided us in a matter or revealed something to us. We don't hold that at the same level as Scripture, but it's, it's compelling nonetheless. He doesn't just influence, he instructs. He instructs, he teaches us. John 14, 26, But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. He will teach you. Beloved, you're not going to get very far in your study of the Bible if you don't involve the Holy Ghost. You need him to teach you. I need him to teach me. And that's why it's so important that, that, we, that we understand who the Holy Ghost is and what his role is because I truly believe that the average Christian, most Christians, are not even close to taking full advantage of what the Holy Ghost brings to their lives. You know what else he does? He invites, he indwells, he identifies, he illuminates, he influences, he instructs, and he also invests. He invests. He invests some things in us. You ever had somebody invest in you? Maybe they gave you some time, gave, they, they taught you some things, they invested into your life because they wanted you to, to be productive and to be able to use that for God's glory and your benefit. Well, the Holy Ghost does that too. He invests in us. What does he invest? Well, first of all, he invests gifts. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4. Now, there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of administrations, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of operations, but it's the same God which worketh all in all. 
But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. For to one is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom, to another the word of knowledge by the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another diverse kinds of tongues, to another interpretation of tongues. But all these work at that one and self same Spirit, dividing to every man severally or individually as he will. Now we understand that in this passage, some of these gifts that we talked about last week, these sign gifts, passed away. They went away with the completed Word of God. But the, the point is still, is still true. The spiritual gifts that you have, you have because God, through His Holy Spirit, invested them in you. He invested in you. By the way, when you make an investment, what do you, what do you expect? A return. A return. Does God expect a return? Yes, he does. Too much is given of him, shall much be required. See? So he invests gifts in us that are be used for his honor and glory. You know what else he invests in us? He invests graces. Graces. What do I mean by graces? But the fruit of the Spirit. His love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such, there is no law. He invests some gifts in us, but he also invested these graces. All right, this next one, you're not going to think applies to everybody, but it does. Okay. He invests gifts. He invests graces. He invests genius. Now, by definition, genius does not necessarily mean you have a high IQ, Mensa level, or whatever. Genius, by definition, can be when you're really good at just about anything. There are people that are mathematical geniuses, there are people that are engineering geniuses, and there are people that are artistic geniuses. There are people that are musical geniuses. It's something that you're really, really good at. And once again... You may not believe this, but every one of us in here has the potential to be genius at something. If that simply means being good at something, everybody in here is good at something. Okay? So let's take an example. Let's go to the Old Testament. Exodus 35. A particular man, in fact, I haven't had you turn anywhere yet. I've been just reading them to you. Let's turn to Exodus 35. When it came time to start building the, the furniture and instruments of the tabernacle, God set aside one man in particular to oversee that. His name was Bezalel. Bezalel was a craftsman extraordinaire. Incidentally, there's nothing in Scripture to tell me that, that Bezalel just woke up one morning able to do this stuff. God used his training. Where did he learn how to do it? Egypt. What's Egypt a type of? The world. Can God use worldly disciplines for his glory? Yeah. Think about it. There's not a whole lot of Christian medical schools out there. 
but I want a doctor that's been to a medical school. The better the better ones I'd prefer, you know. Um, we don't think of being a mechanic as a spiritual discipline. There's things we learn in this world that we can then use for the glory of God. You see what I'm getting at here? Well, here you got this guy Bezalel, who at some point learned how to make things in Egypt. I mean, somebody had to make all that stuff they crammed into the pyramids. That's why I think that it's probably probably within reason that the Ark of the Covenant had a certain Egyptian flair to it, probably, because that's all they knew. Not for nothing, where'd all the gold come from to make it? Egypt. In jest, I told a friend of mine one time, I said, so let's see, they use the world's money to fund God's house. Let's all play the lottery. No, I was just kidding. But uh, anyway, I was just kidding. Well, what if I hit it? Are you going to ask questions? I'm not going to ask a single question. I'm just going to assume you had a rich uncle die and thank the Lord for it. But anyway, Exodus 35, verse 30. And Moses said unto the children of Israel, See, the Lord hath called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And he hath filled him with what? The Spirit of God. In wisdom in understanding and in knowledge and all manner of workmanship and to devise curious works to work in gold and in silver and in brass and in the cutting of stones to set them and in carving of wood to make any manner of cunning work. And he hath put in his heart that he may teach both he and Aholiab, the son of Ahazamach of the tribe of Dan. So Bezalel was a genius. Where did he get that? God's Holy Spirit. Hey, parents. We all dream of our kids being a genius at something. The best way we can facilitate that is to teach them early and often to stay in close communication with the Holy Spirit of God. Now, he invests gifts, he invests graces, he invests genius. And you know what else he invests? This is a great Bible word, not really. Gumption. Y'all know what gumption is, right? For our purposes, we're going to define gumption as the ability, courage, and fortitude to do what is right. Now, we don't tend to look at somebody like Samson as being the godliest of examples, but we know that he was saved. He's in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11, and the majority of his personal problems came at the end of his 20-year reign as judge over it. So, so the body of work of Samson is still pretty good, even though he really messed up a couple of times. Okay, But what do you see in Samson? Samson was a man that when a problem had to be dealt with, he, he was willing to take it on. How many of us, when we think about Samson, we think about this big muscle-bound guy? I don't think that's necessarily the case. His power did not come from his muscles. His power didn't even come from his hair, although his hair was symbolic of it. Where does power come from? The Spirit. It is entirely possible that, that Samson was a string bean. Because God doesn't need a big frame. You know? 
what I like to think is maybe Samson looked like me. He had the dad bod, the gut. But when the Spirit of God came upon him, woo! You know? Listen to Judges 15, verse 14. And when he came unto Lehi, the Philistines shouted against him, and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him. And the cords that were upon his arms became as flax that was burnt with fire, and his bands loosed, and the bands loosed from off his hands. And he found a new jawbone of an ass and put forth his hand and took it and slew a thousand men therewith. That's a fellow with some gumption. Where did he get it? The Holy Ghost. And if you want to be the kind of Christian that doesn't look for trouble, but you're willing to deal with it if it's there, you're going to need the Holy Ghost to do that effectively. But the truth is, there's a dwindling number of Christians that want to have gumption at all. And that's because we just don't walk with the Holy Ghost of God like we should. So, he invites, he indwells, he identifies, he illuminates, he influences, he instructs, he invests. What else he does? He ensures. He ensures. Jesus' word says that I'm saved. But even so, I have an insurance policy. His name is the Holy Ghost. Listen to what it says in 1 Corinthians 1. Verse 21 says, Now he which establisheth us with you in Christ and hath anointed us is God, who hath also sealed us and given the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. The earnest. You know what an earnest is, right? It's a down payment. It's a down payment. So if, if, uh, if I were going to buy Brother Richard's motorcycle, I'm not. Even if I were inclined to, my wife would put the kibosh on that quickly. If I want to show, if, if I say, listen, I don't have all the money on me. I got to go get it. But if you'll hold it for me, I'll, I'll come back. And here's how you can know I'm serious. I'm going to give you a down payment. I'm going to give you money to hold. Okay. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. If I go to prepare a place, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am there you may be also. What did he leave with us as insurance? The Holy Ghost of God. Ephesians 1.13. By the way, I am not coming even close to scratching the surface of what this earnest means. It's such a wonderful truth. It says, In whom Christ, talking about Christ, to whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and whom also, after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. How do I know I'm saved? Well, 
the Holy Ghost talking to you, isn't he? That's how you know. That's how I know that he that has begun a good work in me will complete it. He ensures, you know what else he does? <laughs> this one I don't like as much. He indicts. What's an indictment? We believe this person, there's enough evidence to say that this person did wrong. Well, when the Holy Spirit indicts, he doesn't talk about evidence. He says, no, you're wrong. We call it conviction. Now, there's conviction to be saved, but then there's also conviction once you are saved. See? John 16, verse 8. Jesus, speaking of the Holy Ghost, says, And when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Well, let's look at that word reprove. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is proper for doctrine for reproof. Doctrine means what's right. What does reproof mean? What's wrong? So what does that verse mean? And when he has come, he is going to tell the world what's wrong with their sin. He indicts. I've confided in you before that I've had seasons in my life in which I really struggled with assurance. I never doubted God. I doubted me. I doubted whether or not I did it right, whether or not I really meant it. And by the way, you let that thing go long enough, the devil will take you all kinds of weird places in your thinking. All kinds. And I would love to tell you that what settles the matter for me more often than not is this peace that passes all understanding or my firm belief in the writings of the Word of God. You know, I'd love to tell you that, but I'm, I'll tell you what, what settles it for me more often than anything else, and that's that I can't get away with anything. Because there's this Holy Spirit that lives in me that doesn't let me. He doesn't do that with unsaved people. He invites, he indwells, he identifies, he illuminates, he influences, he instructs, he invests, he ensures, he indicts. You know what else he does? He improves. It's something we call sanctification. It is the Holy Spirit that is used of God to make us more like Jesus to improve us. And that's the only metric for improving is whether or not we're more like Jesus. Okay, If I'm not more like Jesus today than I was yesterday, then I have not improved. He improves us. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 13. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation. By the way... Don't get hung up on that phrase. He chose me to salvation. I have never debated whether or not God has chosen us for salvation. Of course he has. My issue is whether or not he's chosen us for damnation. See? But let me go ahead and just, just hit that little chestnut right now. I do not believe that God has elected some for salvation and some for damnation, and that's just how it is. That is not what the whole of Scripture teaches. Okay? Even so, 
God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through what? Sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. Now, let's unpack this verse a little bit. It seems to indicate that we're not yet fully saved. You know why it seems to indicate that? Because we are not yet fully saved. Your spirit's saved. Your soul is saved. But this old flesh, <laughs> not yet saved. So what, what is God doing? We're being saved. Over the course of my Christian experience, I should be, be becoming more and more like Jesus. And if that's the case, then I, my flesh is being saved. When will it ultimately be saved? When it's changed in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye. Then it's, it's fully, I'm fully 100% saved. I do that sometimes when I pray. I don't do it here anymore because y'all already know the answer. But I'll say, how many of y'all are 100% saved? Amen. No, you're not. Know your Bibles. I don't say it quite that way. We're only two-thirds saved. Because I'm going to tell you right now, the saved part of me is not what hit the alarm this morning. The unsaved part of me is what hit the alarm. My flesh didn't want to get up. It didn't want to minister. It didn't want to serve the Lord. You know who it wanted to serve? Itself. That's all my flesh ever wants to do is serve itself. It's not saved. But the Holy Spirit improves us. See? Oh, we talked about this one last week, too. I said these are going to overlap. You know what else he does? He intercedes. Romans 8.26, Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Spurgeon famously said, Groanings which cannot be uttered are prayers that cannot be denied. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. What does this mean? When I am praying wrongly or when I don't know how to pray at all, the Holy Spirit goes to the Father in my stead and prays for what I should be praying for, if I had enough sense to pray for it. He intercedes. And then lastly, we touched on this earlier too. He ensures, he indicts, he improves, he intercedes. And you better be glad he inhibits. What do I mean by that? Second Thessalonians 2.7, For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth, that letteth means restrain or inhibit. He who now restrains will restrain until he be taken out of the way. What's that talking about? It's talking about the Holy Ghost of God that is holding back the torrent of evil that wants to take over this world. You say, well, it's already pretty bad. It sure is. Can you imagine how bad it's going to be when the Holy Spirit takes his hands off of it? You see, he leaves at the rapture. He leaves at the rapture. And then you're going to see what man is capable of without any spiritual compass at all. 
there is a certain amount of holdover morality that exists in mankind because we are made in the image of God. But it's just a residue. And it goes away quickly. Without the Holy Ghost to restrain evil, and we already see glimpses of it now. You see it in guys like Hitler and Idi Amin and Osama bin Laden. But I got news for you. You take the Holy Spirit out of here. That next-door neighbor that seems so sweet is going to become real wicked in a hurry. This, this world will be hell on earth. It's going to be bad. I'm glad I won't be here for it. Believe that with all of my heart. I believe my theology is sound. That's wishful thinking. No, I believe it's Bible thinking. I believe we're going out before, before, the, the, before, the, uh, before the tribulation ever starts. We talked about this in our high school Bible class today. We know there's going to be a rapture. It's, 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 mentioned, it's mentioned over and again, even if not by name. But what do you do with Lot? Lot was a child of God. Didn't act like it, but he was. The Bible twice says it. What did God do? God got Lot out of there before judgment fell. Because he deserved it? No. Not getting us out because we deserve it either. Because of his grace. God's always been a God of grace. And we talked about the different verses. So 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15. And we talked about John 14. But then I explained to them the seven churches of Revelation and how they, they, among other things, represent the seven stages of church history. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, a great door opened in heaven and a voice hollered, come up hither, and the next thing I know, I'm in heaven. What in the world does that sound like to you? The rapture. I believe we're going to be gone for it, for the tribulation. But right now, the Holy Spirit's holding it back. Holding back, inhibiting sin. And I'm glad he is. But when he's gone, it's going to be bad. So what's the so what tonight? Well, it kind of leads into next week. We've established he's a person. We've established that he's God. And we've seen all the things that he does in our lives. Now, again, as I say this, I am not at all meaning to be less than respectful of the Father and the Son. But remember, the Father and the Son aren't here. The Spirit is. That's who the Father and the Son left here to help us. The Spirit. And if the Spirit is so actively involved in our lives as he is, then why in the world do we treat him like he is a peripheral issue at best? I find myself when I pray talking to the Father, and sometimes I talk to the Son, and I, I don't very often at all talk to the Holy Spirit. Why? He's as much God as the Father and the Son, and he happens to be the one living here. That's, that's tantamount to me getting online and preaching to somebody across the country, you know, when y'all are sitting right here. Y'all are welcome. I'm glad you're here, but I'm going to be preaching online to these people over here. No, you're the ones that are here. I should talk to you, right? Well, why don't we talk to the Holy Ghost and involve him in our lives like we should when he's the one that's here? 
And then as we see all these things that he does, that brings us to a very important question for next week. What is my responsibility to the Holy Spirit? Just to give you something to whet your appetite, I shouldn't grieve him. I shouldn't insult him. There was a group of people that did real bad and they blasphemed him. So we have some responsibilities to him, don't we? And I believe with all of my heart that as we get to know the Holy Spirit of God and we start taking advantage of what he offers and what he can do, we're going to see some pretty neat stuff.